A little over a year ago, Dr. Gene Getz was our guest. We introduced a study Bible, the Life Essentials Study Bible, which was the Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible. And we challenged you as a church. Some of you took the challenge, some didn't. But we challenged you to read through the Bible in 2013. You remember? Okay. So, uh, so we just read a scripture, Isaiah chapter 66. Anything significant about that? Anything? Now, if you followed the reading plan that we set forth, the discipleship journal reading plan, the very last chapter you read about the 15th of this month, was Isaiah 66. It was the very last chapter in all the readings. So some of you haven't gotten caught up yet, have you? And so when I came to Isaiah 66, I'm thinking, I'm finished. And then the Spirit of God said, Dave, you're far from finished. There's still a lot of work I want to do in you. And so he drove me to those two verses in that last chapter. To first of all, think and ponder who God really is. And then to see myself in perspective next to him. So I want us to take just a minute to do that this morning. Because I think it will prepare us to come to this table with the right heart and the right spirit for what we are going to do in a few moments as we share in communion. Isaiah 66 and verse 1 says this. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Now that's the Hebrew way of saying that everything is his. Everything that is, is because of him. When you say heaven and you say earth, you're saying everything that is and everything that exists. He says, it's my throne. Heaven is my throne. He says, the earth is my footstool. What house could you possibly build for me? And what place could be my home? My hand made all these things so that they all came into being. Well, for centuries we've sought to build houses for him. Churches. Before then... There was a tabernacle in the wilderness. Interestingly enough, back in Acts chapter 7, you'll remember Stephen, was the, you know, who was just a deacon in the church, was brought before the Sanhedrin because he was openly testifying about Jesus. And so they grilled him in the Sanhedrin. And, and Stephen started back at the very beginning with the promise given to Abraham and just began to give a, a short but very concise summary of all of Israel's history until he comes to verse 44 in chapter 7 of Acts. He says, our our ancestors, they had a tabernacle 
of the testimony in the wilderness. Remember, Moses led them to Sinai, and then they, they carefully constructed the tabernacle in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. And our ancestors in turn received it. And with Joshua, they brought it in with them uh, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers when they entered into the promised land until the days of David, he said. David, he found favor in God's sight. And he asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house. However, Stephen says, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with the hands, made with hands. For as the prophet says, and now he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 1, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house Will you build for me, says the Lord. What was it that Stephen, along with Peter and all of the apostles, were coming to understand about the dwelling place of the Most High? That it's not a place made with human hands. Where does he make his dwelling place? In the heart of the believer. That in the New Testament, we become the temple. We become the very dwelling place because of the indwelling Spirit of God that comes in. We become the very dwelling place of the Most High. Okay, now let me ask you another question. When was the last time you really, you know, your, your world was really shaken? When was the last time you really trembled? I saw, I saw one of those YouTube videos that went viral, you know, of a 12-year-old girl who opened up her Christmas present, and it was tickets to Lady Gaga. I don't know what kind of parent would do that, but, but she was so excited. She couldn't speak. She just trembled because sometimes we tremble. There are joy tremors, right, that happen. Ever had a joy tremor where you just shook with excitement? What about you're driving on a freeway and, and, and you just narrowly miss, you know, having a, a major accident and the adrenaline just suddenly just rushes through your body and, and you know, and you're just, you just tremble, you know, and, and you, you understand the significance of what somehow you have just avoided, but you have to pull off the side of the road, gripping the steering wheel just to until you can calm down. Ever been there? Or heard a loud bump in the night and you just sit up erect in bed and you just tremble with fear because of the unknown because you don't know what just happened and you're listening and in tuning your ears, and you know, but you just but fear just suddenly grips you. When was the last time you really trembled? In verse two, 
Isaiah says. And I think we could pose the question here. So if he makes his dwelling place in us, what kind of place, what kind of heart does he look for? For his dwelling. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably for this kind of person, one who is humble, one who is humble. The word there is ani in Hebrew. Most of the time in the Old Testament, it's translated poor. Two-thirds of the time in the Old Testament is translated poor. Who does he look for? He, he, where does he, how does his, his, when his eyes search, where does he look to make his dwelling? On the one who is humble, who is poor. Does that sound familiar? Where does Jesus say that all wealth in the kingdom is bestowed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're immediately bestowed with, with the wealth of heaven because they are humble, because they are poor. The Holman Christian Standard Version says the next sentence. He looks for one who is submissive in spirit. A lot of the other translations say the word contrite. The old Hebrew word comes from this idea of being smitten. Being crippled. Being disabled. So it's like. God looks favorably with the favorable on the one who is who is crippled, disabled in spirit, unable to walk by themselves. Isn't that an interesting idea? Contrite in heart, broken. A heart broken. That might mean their heart is broken over their sin. But it could just mean their heart is broken within them because of life and the circumstances of life. You know, when Jesus said, blessed are they in the second beatitude, blessed are they that mourn. Clearly, he could be referencing the commentators generally sort of pick sides. Well, is he talking about they mourn because of their sin? Or does he talk about they mourn because, because they, they weep because the circumstances of their life are so, are so difficult and so sorrowful? Jesus doesn't offer that commentary. He says it's probably both. God looks down with favor on those who are broken and hurting, either because of their sin or someone else's sin. He died for it all. 
And then I love that last line. Not only are they humble, submissive, or contrite in heart, they tremble at my word. When was the last time you read scripture and you trembled before God having read his word? The word means fear, reverence, one who reverence, reverences or reveres his word or his commands, one who, the Message Bible says, who is reverently responsive to everything God says. I love that. God looks for that kind of heart to make his dwelling. The person who realizes they have absolutely nothing that they can offer him, they are poor, they are humble in spirit, and they are contrite, broken, even feeling disabled. And they tremble. They take seriously. They believe what is in here is the very word of life for them. And so when, it re- when they read it, they take it so seriously as to tremble. I wonder how it is that we lose our sense of wonder and anticipation, reverence and fear for God and for his word, for all things that are holy and are sacred. I think it's when things become a little too routine for us. The rest of Isaiah 66 describes the Israelites who go through the motions of worship. Oh yes, they're making sacrifices. And God still loves them, but they're getting nowhere because they just go through the motions. I remember years ago, I'm a seminary student. I've just finished my second year of seminary, and I got a call from Weatherford College asking me if I would teach their classes in Old and New Testament because I was living in Weatherford at the time and known by a number of people. So I get this phone call from the faculty asking me to come and teach. They wanted me to teach the fall semester of Old Testament study for the college. I'd only had one semester of Old Testament introduction under Dr. Smith at the seminary. And I'll tell you, that that guy was as dry as they come. Okay? And uh, he lit up when when he taught Hebrew. But when he taught survey of the Old Testament, he was as dry as they come. And so I, 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 I'm going to just tell you, I've got to confess, I was scared spitless. Really, seriously. Because I said yes, because I, I wanted the job. It's like, you know, 750 bucks or something like that to do this class. So I wanted the job, I mean, because it was a source of income for a, for a seminary student. But I didn't, I, I recognized immediately what I didn't know. 
And so I got in my car and I drove to San Marcos, Texas, and I had a meeting with Dr. Glenn North, who became my mentor that year and provided me with a, an outline and a syllabus of the Old Testament. So I'd have something to work off of. I didn't finish his syllabus, by the way. I, got, I didn't even come within 300 yards of a major or a minor prophet, you know, that first semester. But I will tell you one thing that happened is that every day when I walked from my little cubicle office toward that classroom, the fear and the anxiety drove me to prayer and it drove me to my knees. And I depended on God because I was scared spitless. And then you know what happens over time? You start feeling pretty good about your presentation. You got your outline down and you got a few illustrations to kind of mix in and, and then you, you rock along and then a few years later, you know, you realize you're walking casually from your cubicle, your little cubicle office over to the classroom and you're not praying anymore. And I think what Isaiah is saying to us, the Lord's looking for that man, that woman who when they open the word, they seek to open it in a fresh way to say, God, speak to my heart and I will listen in anticipation. I will tremble at your word. I'll hear it again as if it was fresh and new and heard for the first time. And you know what? Isaiah said he honors that. Every time. So we're going to share communion. Hey, JR, put that verse 2 back up. Would you? Let's leave it there while we make our heart preparation. Would you? Let me just explain for you how we're going to move about in just a moment. We're going to give you opportunity to, where you are, to pray and to think about what this table means. Not only to his church, but to you as a Christ follower. We practice an open communion. When you come, when you are ready to come to this table, you simply will come and take a piece of bread, prayerfully and reverently, dip it in the cup and eat it here. Because we have families here today, and often when we have families, there are those among us who have, you know, who have yet to respond to Christ's personal invitation to them as Lord and Savior of their life. And we are continuing to, you know, as, as parents and as a church, to nurture and to encourage faith in them. And that's the reason why we have in the center, we have some grapes. Years ago, one Sunday, sitting with my son Jim in a church service in which communion was being served, And as they were passing the plate of bread by and I took a piece of bread, my son, who was at the time seven years old, leaned over and said, Dad, why can't I have any of the bread? 
And I says, you will someday, Jim, when you understand what this really means. My son looked up to me with inquisitive eyes and said, Dad, I know that Jesus died on a cross for us all. So you know what I did? Even though he'd yet to make his own you know, his own decision to follow Christ and to be a Christ follower, I broke off a little piece of my bread and I gave it to Jim. Because it's my responsibility as a parent to nurture faith in my children. And so I just let him have a little piece of mine. So that's what we do here at World Bend. I hope you're okay with that. But we just believe that, you're to, you know, that we are to nurture faith in in those that, the little ones that are coming up under our care. And so we encourage if you have one of those with you and you want to bring them to this communion table, give them a grape as a symbol of planting the seed of faith in them and break off a little tiny corner, a corner of your bread to give them. But then when you're ready, you come and receive communion for yourselves. So now is your opportunity to humble yourself, to take a moment for confession, for contrition, to come with a contrite spirit, and to take seriously the word of God that's been spoken to us. That on the night that he was to be betrayed, in the upper room, preparations had been made by the disciples for them to share in the Passover meal. And entering into that meal, Jesus took bread from that table and he gave thanks. And then he broke it. And he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after, later in the meal, he took the cup from the table And he distributed that. He passed it among them saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. As oft as you drink this cup and you eat this bread, you do show forth the Lord's coming until that day when he does return so he gave us this, this meal together, this communion meal that we might reflect on what Christ did for us that in our poverty we could have never, ever, ever done. It's his finished work. And so we come as paupers, humble. We come with a contrite heart because we recognize that that he had to live a sinless, perfect life because we are anything but sinless and perfect. 
and because he fulfilled every word, because he trembled, he trembled and revered and trusted every word that the Father gave him. Faithful to every word, he completed salvation for us. So let's bow together. I would ask that you come in a moment when you have prepared your heart that you enter by the center aisle go back to your seat going around to the outside aisle and we will wait until all who wish to come to this communion table have had opportunity to come. If, if it is your conviction that you're not ready, that you're not to move, follow that conviction. Listen to the voice of the one who calls you and who loves you.